Good evening, hello and welcome. You're listening to People Powered Radio 2XX FM 98.3. The program is Subject ACT and I'm Sophie Singh, your host for tonight. It's wonderful to have your company. On Subject ACT, we bring you stories connecting with our local Canberra community and beyond, exploring current and community affairs from a curious and informed perspective. Affairs with a global dimension. The world is made up of stories, with each of us having our own unique past, present and future. And our guest tonight works with others to tell their stories of asylum, of survival and of rebuilding through photography and videography. Caitlin Welch is a videographer and digital producer who has worked with refugee communities in Indonesia and more recently with the LGBTIQ community in Tajikistan. Caitlin has recently returned to her hometown, Canberra, and we're fortunate to have her in the studio this morning. Caitlin, welcome to Subject ACT and thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Let's start with the fundamentals. What does a digital producer and videographer do? So producing digital visual content. So that's mainly photography and videography. Yeah, I also work with others to craft their stories. So I'm not fully producing it, but working together to produce stories. So you're working with them to craft their story, to shape their content? Yeah, so in some cases it's been to craft their stories. So I have held workshops teaching people to get their story from, you know, lasting an hour long when you've written it down and reading it to just three minutes, but also teaching people how to take photos and how to assemble a photo so that they can tell a story clearly and powerfully. So... That can be a learned skill because often I think of photography as someone who's got an eye, if you like, to be able to capture an image just right. But you're saying that that can be a skill that that is learned or can be learned. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what I always do is I'll focus on the attributes of photography when I'm trying to teach someone about how to take photos and how to tell their story. And the best way to do that is to put photos in front of people and say, okay, look at this and analyze it for me. Can you tell me about the sort of time of day, the light that you can see? Are there any lines of direction? Is there a message that's being told in this photo? Caitlin, you've been working with refugee communities in Indonesia first when you went over to Indonesia in 2010. Your involvement with those communities has been around enabling or facilitating for them to capture their stories? Yeah, so it was a bit of that helping people to tell their stories and to capture their stories but also using visual media for fundraising purposes. So I met a lot of people over in Indonesia um, living as refugees and asylum seekers who wanted to start up a karate club for the community or wanted to start up a school or were sick and didn't have access to medical facilities or didn't have the money to be able to get access to the medical facilities that they need. So making short films or using photos to share those stories with people in Australia to try and get them to engage and support these people who are just right next door. People were very responsive for all of the fundraising campaigns that we did. You know, we reached our target. So that's always the biggest goal. Of course. The people that you were working with in the refugee communities in Indonesia, was there a reluctance to sharing their stories? Not for people who already had their refugee status. People who didn't have their refugee status yet were reluctant. You know, a lot of the time they'd share their story and I'd think, oh, you know, this isn't going to affect their case at all. But for peace of mind, for them, you know, you never want to try and push them. But 
everyone who I was working with who already did have their refugee status was so, so keen and passionate about sharing their story because they saw the power in it. You know, they saw when they were sharing their stories, they were getting responses and they were engaging with people from communities in Australia. And it was a way for them to communicate with people in a country that they might be resettled in. And so a lot of the time it was like an exchange as well, instead of them just sharing stories because they get to hear people's short stories back over Facebook mainly. So it is about making those very human connections. Yeah, exactly. So for people who have experienced trauma and those who've had to flee persecution, flee war, almost by definition experience trauma, how do you prevent the experience of or the process of them telling their stories becoming a re-traumatizing experience yeah so that's something that's really tricky you have to be of course very gentle and respectful in the way that you're asking questions and you're talking to someone and I normally when I would go and either interview someone or film someone or be working with someone to teach them you know how to take photos it wouldn't be like an interview when we'd first sit down you know these people became some of my best friends as well and so letting them know that they can share what they want to share but I'm there and whoever else was with me because normally a lot of the time when I go and film I'd have younger friends who are refugees coming to see how to work the equipment and also filming as well but knowing that we're there to support them and that we're not there to attack I mean, you never know. That's the thing. Yeah, you never know if someone is, that trauma is coming back to them. But a lot of the time, because people are coming from such heartbreaking backgrounds, I mean, you could just see it in their eyes, how painful it was. Everyone I'd meet, it always looked like there was just, you know, this single tear just sitting in the corner of their eye all the time, just waiting to drop. I think the trauma always sort of sits there. How do you maintain your own mental health when you're becoming privy to harrowing stories how do you make sure that you stay well exercise is good for me I think I used to do a lot of meditation but it was really tricky in Indonesia I mean Indonesia is such a bustling place it's so crowded and so even you know if I'd stay up till three o'clock in the morning and be like all right it's going to be nice and quiet now I can sit down and meditate and just process everything that happened today you still got this like of the motorbike but yeah mainly exercise and and meditation yeah and also I wouldn't say I'm desensitized because when I sit there I can feel you know this story that people are sharing you know you can feel that energy and it's powerful and it can be quite intense and it, it can really rock you but because I also go over it and edit it so many times I look at it differently like it's beautiful but it's hard sorry it's a funny thing to explain it sounds like you need to create some level of detachment yeah to be able to work with that content absolutely but not too much I mean of course you can't no of course that's exactly (laughs) right yeah Caitlin, you first went to Indonesia in 2010 when the Chisarua Refugee Learning Centre was just being set up and then you went back there again last year. What changed between the time you first went and then the time you returned, not just in terms of the physical environment and and the physical presence of the school, but also in terms of the sense of well-being for the people at the school and the people who continue to organise that enterprise? Yeah, so much changed. It was incredible to go back after that time. The main thing was... I mean, physically, of course, it was different because that engaged with more people and being able to get a little bit more funding to get books and, you know, to paint the walls and make it a bit more comfortable and make it feel like a school instead of just empty rooms filled with children and a teacher. But it was running like 
a proper school in Australia or like a, a business, a really well oil, a really well run business. They had everything down pat. Everything's there. They had an accountant. There was a principal and then a deputy principal. And when I first went there, a lot of the people in charge were men. But something that they've consciously decided to do is really bring women to the forefront of the school and get them to participate in the learning, but also in the teaching. And so last time I went, the principal was this incredible woman. And that probably wouldn't happen back in Afghanistan. So it's getting a lot more progressive as well. The teachers are much younger now. They used to be a bit older, but they're a lot younger. And I think that was or is a lot better for the children because they're able to connect with the teachers a lot more. They have the capacity to have more students, more community engagement as well. So each of the parents at the school will come in I think once every two weeks and clean the school and so it's not just run by a small group of people it's owned by the community and I think that's really important and it's helped it to grow so much as well and helped to inspire more schools to start up in Indonesia. So Chizarua is the name of the area and that's just out of Jakarta? Yeah it's about two hours south of Jakarta. Okay. And is that the main area where Hazara refugees are living in Indonesia? Yeah, it is. It's it's funny, I don't know how it really became that area. I just got told everyone would meet at this one store and from there you'd sort of find your way, you know, get off the plane, go to UNHCR, get down to Chisarua, meet at this this shopping centre and then um, hope that you'll see friends and family. So the learning centre mainly involves kids from the Hazara community or it's open to any kids in the refugee community in Indonesia? It's open to any kids in the refugee community, uh, but because there is such a large population of Hazara Afghans in that community, majority of them are Hazara children. But, you know, there's some Iraqi children. uh, There's I think there was some kids from Sudan, Somalia. Yeah, so it's open to everyone. All right. And there's now a network of schools that has sprung up, really motivated by the Chizarua experience. Yeah, so the first one that opened after the Chisarua Refugee Learning Centre was started by a group of people who were actually working at the Chisarua or volunteering because they're all volunteers volunteering at the Chisarua Refugee Learning Centre before. So that school sort of split to be able to give them the capacity to get more children in the classrooms. But I think there's seven schools now, all refugee established and refugee run. So, you know, these are people who don't have any money to start it but they somehow find a way and it's absolutely incredible. The most recent one is, I think, Help for Refugees and a young, he must be 19 now, young 19-year-old boy started that up on his own. Wow, that's impressive. Yeah. And it's a nice opportunity to mention that there is a film that's been made about establishing the Chisarua Learning Centre and the trigger was, as I understand it, following the announcement in 2015, uh, then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd announced that no person who sought asylum in Australia who, who sought to come to Australia by boat would ever settle in Australia. And that was really a crisis moment for the refugees uh, in Indonesia who were hoping to come to Australia and, and to seek asylum. And that determination by some key people in the Hazara community to really provide opportunities for their children was the trigger for the establishment of of the Learning Centre. Yeah, that was it. And it was started by one of the parents, but another young boy, Khadim Dai, he was 17 when he stepped up and said, we need to educate these children in the community. So him and another another fellow called Muzaffa, they got together and they had a meeting within the community and said we need to educate the kids because we don't know how long we're going to be here for 
And so it's really essential. And so this film, the staging post, is actually shot entirely by Hadim over two and a half, three year period. So you get to see the whole process of when the school started, when they first had that meeting, to now. It's a wonderful journey to chart and have that captured. Caitlin, there are more than 14,000 refugees in Indonesia, mostly, as you say, from Afghanistan, and and I think the second largest group, the Rohingya refugees from Myanmar. And the realisation that people didn't know how long they would be in Indonesia for must be a terrible thing to, to have to deal with. And I know recently the UNHCR has acknowledged and admitted, which I'm sure is not for the first time, that many of those in Indonesia will never be resettled in a third country. What's the situation or what's the conditions that refugees and asylum seekers face in Indonesia? Because Indonesia is not a signatory to the 1951 uh, Refugee Convention, although it has recently passed a decree to protect refugees. But what is the reality for refugees and, and asylum seekers on the ground in Indonesia? Yeah, so they're not able to work. I think that's one of the biggest problems because how are you supposed to live if you can't earn money? So a lot of them would have had to have brought money with them to survive. But the reality at the end of the day is that almost all, you know, everyone that I was meeting wasn't able to do that. So they're relying on family who are living overseas or people in the community. Some of the most incredible things I've ever seen was seeing people in that community who had exhausted all their money and then seeing refugees in the community come together, donating bread, donating rice, donating food, bringing them dinner or giving them a little bit of money when they had nothing either. So they can't work. When the Learning Centre was established, there was a sign at UNHCR that said they weren't allowed to participate in group activities. I mean, that would mean starting a school, but that's actually changed now. So they encourage going to school. They don't have any support from the Indonesian government. So they don't have any help in getting medical or reaching medical facilities, which is a big problem because it's quite expensive. One fellow that I met over there had an abscess in the back of his cortex and he was hospitalized for four months and then had a $15,000 hospital debt. And how is he supposed to pay that? And he paid it because some incredible people in Australia got together and helped to support him. And that was life-changing surgery. But there are people over there who aren't able to go to hospital. There was one woman I met who had tuberculosis who went and saw the doctor, got better, but then got sick again and was saying, I don't know if I can go back to hospital because I can't afford it. So when you get there and you go to UNHCR and you register, uh, some people end up sleeping on the streets for the first you know, couple of weeks until they talk to people out the front of UNHCR and get their bearings about where to go. So they can go out to a detention centre. But in the detention centre, once you go in, you're not allowed out. So So there are people who've been in the detention centres for years? Yeah. And the conditions in the detention centres are absolutely appalling. Again, people aren't getting the right access to the medical care that they need. I saw pictures where you know they're literally just sleeping on a concrete floor iom will normally come and check in but sometimes that was only happening every three or four months and so really they weren't monitoring what was going on but if you don't go to a detention center then you can go and live out in the community but you don't have any help in doing that and it's in a language that they've never spoke before and some of them don't even speak english so you can come over and only speak dari or pashtu and then you're trying to navigate in this country and so it's incredibly incredibly challenging yeah, of course and 
even to get that first interview with the UNHCR, I understand, can take up to 20 months. Yeah, that's it. And then you can be waiting another 20 months yeah. to hear if you have refugee status. Oh, I mean, that was back a couple of years yeah. ago. That could take up to 10 years now, apparently. Yeah, so but, they really just don't know. Which puts it into context, the decisions that people make to try and reach somewhere where they can actually rebuild their lives, that there is an infrastructure that can enable them to build their lives and then contribute. Exactly. How are refugees presented in the media in Indonesia? I'm not sure whether this is something that you can comment on, but are they presented in the same sort of negative context that we see so often um, has been the case in Australia? I can't comment too much on that because I wasn't reading much Indonesian news while I was over there. You'd find a lot of local Indonesians coming to the school to volunteer. And so I was talking to them and they were saying it was just a complete mix. You know, you had people like the Jakarta Post praising these schools and looking at all the incredible positive aspects of what was happening in the refugee communities. But then you also had on the other side, people condemning refugees and saying that Indonesians really needed the help. Of course, that's true. But I think there was a bit of misunderstanding because people would think that these refugees were coming over and then getting support from the Indonesian government when in actual fact, they weren't getting any support at all. That sounds familiar. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. So there's quite a good relationship between the uh, refugee communities and the local communities that live within the same town, city? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have heard of people having tension, you know, having a bit of a scuffle, but that's normal everywhere. You know, my neighbour may have, you know, done something and you'll get a little bit annoyed. But while I was there, I saw nothing but, yeah, just really beautiful, kind relationships. I was living in a house with a woman and her two children from Afghanistan and her landlord would come over for dinner all the time and they'd always hang out and she'd always give her bread and her landlord would always bring over like delicious fried chicken. So that was really common as well. But I think at first it wasn't so easy. But now those relationships have been built and Indonesians in the communities have seen that these refugees are really contributing to their communities and really respectful as well. I saw so many people who were so creative and business-minded as well. If they were able to work in Indonesia, they would be bringing so much to those communities, whether that's through education or employment by starting their own small businesses. Um, But unfortunately, they can't do that. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Subject ACT, your local current affairs show on 2XXFM 98.3 Community Radio. I'm Sophie Singh and we're in conversation with Caitlin Welch who works with marginalised communities overseas to capture their stories in photography and videography. Caitlin, after working in Indonesia, you travelled to Tajikistan. What took you to a country that I think very few Australians probably will visit? So I started off there getting an internship. So I got a videography internship with Mercy Corps, which is an international not-for-profit organisation. They do a lot of work in disaster risk management, maternal and child health. At the moment, they're doing work with Afghan refugees in Tajikistan as well. I started with the internship and it was funny because when I got it, I didn't know where Tajikistan was. I remember my partner at the time, I was calling it Tajikistan. He was like, you're going to a country, you don't even know how to say the name. And it was quite special because I had no expectations. What is this country in Central Asia I've never heard of? So I started with the internship and then just continued to work there and just fell in love with the country. So it's a landlocked country, about eight and a half million in population, bordered by Afghanistan to the south, Uzbekistan to the west, Kyrgyzstan to the north and China to the east. So that's a geographical context for Tajikistan. But give us a sense of the country. Were you in, is it Dushanbe? 
Is that how you pronounce the capital? Yeah, Dushanbe. Um, That's where you were based? Yeah, that was where I was based, but I would travel out a lot, week in, week out, out in villages, up in the mountains, but then would come back to Dushanbe, mainly for the weekends, just to have a warm shower when it was possible, because it was normally pretty cold out in the villages. It was an incredibly interesting place. The streets are wide and open. It's part of the former Soviet Union, and so you have all that incredible old Soviet architecture and the big wide tiled streets you know walking down there every morning when I would be there I tried to picture what it was like back in those days but it's quite hard to do but then out in the villages which was really diverse and really interesting because you had places that were very similar to parts of Afghanistan where it just looks like the moon completely bare and really dry it's also I think maybe 93% of the country is mountainous region so it's just mountains absolutely everywhere it gets really cold there as well and there's a real diversity of people because like you said it's surrounded by so many different countries and those lines that were drawn around Tajikistan don't really represent the tribal areas that were historically there so you've got a lot of Uzbeks living there Afghans, a lot of Russians Pamiris, people from South Korea as well and the villages are are poor I mean if it's very mountainous to what extent could people grow crops or how fertile is the soil? Yeah it's pretty fertile but the problem is it just the weather is pretty unforgiving so it can just be extremely hot and then extremely cold and it'll start to get extremely hot and then two weeks of heat and the crops finally start growing and there's a big cold frost that comes through like literally snow again and the villages are very poor there's often no electricity, no running water. So you can imagine that brings in a lot of health problems. Access to things like medical facilities is really, really sparse. Petrol's still quite expensive over there as well. And you have to travel quite a long distance to get to say a medical facility or a school. And so the access just isn't there for a lot of people. There's no real middle class there. That's one of the biggest issues. There's very wealthy upper class, and then there's a very poor class the rest of the population the rest of the population yeah. exactly okay caitlin you were working and correct me if i'm wrong with the lgbtiq community in Dushanbe. what level of persecution does the community face in tajikistan so you wouldn't even say that you were transgender or that you were gay i mean i knew one one woman who lived further up north and she had let people know and she was actually able to get surgery but that was just unheard of I've heard of a lot of people being arrested, being brutalised, being kicked out of their family. I had one friend in particular who was looking to start up an organisation to support people in the LGBTQI community, but you can't start up an organisation when you can't even register that it's helping to support these people's legal rights or giving them access to doctors, you know, if they wanted to take hormones so they know exactly how much they should be taking. Even, like, job counselling because there's so much discrimination that people can't even get a job. Caitlin, in your work in Indonesia and in Tajikistan, what image or images have stayed with you most vividly? Do you mean actual physical images or yeah, even perhaps an experience? Something that has, you know, really, you know, like struck with you. Profound, yeah. yeah. I think the biggest thing and probably wouldn't expect this. The one thing I feel so incredibly lucky to have been able to love people in my life and share love with people, love and trust because I would go and work with so many women in particular in these communities 
that would never experience that love, which I would believe is such an integral part of life. You know, maybe if they had children, of course, there is that love, but they wouldn't get it from their family sometimes and they wouldn't get it from their partners because they are made to get married a lot of the time when 17 or 18. Um, of course, that's not the case all the time. I just, after living in Tajikistan and in Indonesia, just have the most incredible love and respect for women and men but the strength of women. It has been quite moving and profound to see the incredible work that these women have done after a lifetime of oppression sometimes, and they keep coming back. It's just incredible. You know, I saw a lot of people getting threatened for wanting to do something to help their community, and they didn't stand down because they believed that being there for their mothers and their sisters and all the other women in the community was more important and that they just had to do it. Yeah, it's been quite incredible. Incredible courage. Absolutely. Caitlin, we're just about out of time, but let's finish up with what's next for you. You're back in Canberra for a little while, but um, plans for the next little while? Yeah, so... I really want to continue to do participatory work. I see so much power in helping to facilitate people to tell their own stories because then it can't be edited at all. As a video editor, you can change footage to make it say many different things. And I know that people are very truthful with their editing, but if you have someone actually doing it themselves, it's just so incredibly powerful. Thank you very much. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much, Caitlin, for coming in and talking to us on Subject ACT. It's really been interesting, so thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And that brings us to the end of tonight's program. I hope you've enjoyed it. Tune in to Subject ACT next Tuesday night at 6.30. If you can't tune in, you can always stream us live or on demand at the 2XX website. Just go to 2XXFM.org.au. I'm Sophie Singh. Thanks for listening and have a great rest of your week. (music) 